Welcome to Schools on the Front Lines, a podcast brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. This special podcast series has focused on the multiple challenges that our schools faced as they shut down last March and now here in the fall as they reopen with an improved approach to distance learning as the new normal. These new challenges also present schools with new opportunities to get things right. In this, our ninth episode, I'm speaking with Jackie Tuhong Wong, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy at Grace, a nonprofit that is focused on ending child poverty in California. She's also an elected member of the Washington Unified School District Board of Education in the West Sacramento area, and she's also the mother of a fourth and sixth grader. Welcome, Jackie. Good afternoon, Carl. First, let's talk about your day job with Grace. What is it? What's the mission of the organization? And who are the religious women behind this work? Well, I am the Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the End Child Poverty in California campaign, as you noted, formed by the Daughters of Charity, who are an order of Catholic nuns who took an additional vow to serve the poor in the tradition of St. Vincent de Paul. They've actually been doing anti-poverty work in California since 1852, so uh, you know, a couple of centuries or so. And approximately five years ago, the End Child Poverty in California campaign was formed because they realized that it was an atrocity that we had a child poverty crisis in the state of California. The richest state in the nation also had the largest number of children in poverty, that being almost 2 million children living in poverty in California. So one in five children in California pre-COVID actually lives in poverty. What's even more atrocious to them is that there were almost half a million children living in deep poverty. And for context, that is a family of three living on less than $13,400 a year. So they formed Grace and the End Child Poverty Institute with the realization that political advocacy and government action are crucial to pushing for real change in California. How has the pandemic made your work more difficult? In some ways, the legislature became more accessible for those who were able to call in or lift up their voice to legislators via Zoom or other technology. But in other ways, and I was talking to some folks who work in Sacramento, is that if you didn't have established relationships with members already or legislative leadership, it was hard to actually get in front of them. Where in past years, community members who came were able to advocate and run into legislators and their legislators in the hall and share their story. That was a little bit more challenging this time around. The pandemic, as one can imagine, with the shutdown of the economy and schools, we actually haven't run the, the new numbers of what child poverty looks like post-pandemic. Well, we knew that income supports were a critical part of recovery and actually just ensuring that kids were being fed and that um, families were not being evicted and a number of other things, kind of the basic necessities were met for all Californians. And so for us, we because we had already been advocating for things like income supports, it became that much more important for us to lift up the necessity of cash investment, cash policy, if you will, for families who were living in these situations. 
And as you know, the numbers, the employment numbers were increasing. How does an organization like yours measure progress in ending child poverty in California? In November of 2018, we did actually issue a full report with 24 foundational and 18 comprehensive recommendations that were informed by the research and the data. And so for us, we measure ending child poverty by ensuring that for us, the daughters wanted to end deep child poverty so that there were no children living below that $13,400 income line is one measure. A lot of our numbers are driven by the income levels of families in California. Are you at all optimistic about the ability of the legislatures in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. to make this a top priority with new funding? I'm actually proud to be a Californian in this moment. There were a a few touch and and go points when the pandemic hit us and hit hardest families who were living in poverty. The governor and the legislature saw it fit to actually provide funding for undocumented families that was not available in the Federal CARES Act money. The legislature and the governor also recently signed on Friday, yay, the expansion of the California Earned Income Tax Credit that will be provided to all Californians irregardless of immigration status. And so that is a huge win because we know that the Cali ITC is one of the best ways to address um, poverty in the nation, if not just California. Again, that actually expands to our undocumented families that were left out of many of the CARES Act and other funding. And in that vein, because we eliminated the exclusion of item filers in Cali ITC, that was approximately $100 million ongoing funds for our California. So in California, I absolutely am hopeful and excited about the investment in our families uh, and the prioritization that all families deserve to thrive. As COVID-19 became more of a barrier to families thriving in California, we knew that we had to focus on Washington, D.C. and what was happening there. So we gathered the, the feedback from all of our partners in California and helped to actually provide certain recommendations to federal leadership that helped craft the HEROES Act. I would say the HEROES Act was phenomenal, included pretty much everything that our partners asked for. But as we know, it stalled out and the Senate left before any action was taken. A little bit of my the wind out of my sails is let, given the politics of Washington, D.C. But I do remain hopeful with leaders like Pelosi and others and Congresswoman Bass who are going to fight to the bitter end um, for families in California. And who are your go-to partners in this work, and how will you organize and advocate going forward? We actually started a formal partnership with Dolores Huerta and the Dolores Huerta Foundation to actually begin that grassroots campaign work to lift up uh, voices of communities. The Western Center on Law and Poverty is another one. The Children's Defense Fund of California is another partner, as well as Children Now at several early care and education folks like CCRC, Kappa, Head Start in California. And so our coalition is over 170 organizations. And we are a diverse group of folks. So, Carl, I've been in this work for a couple of decades And I must say, I've never seen a more diverse group of coalition members from private business to foundations to anti-poverty advocates to foster care advocates, et cetera, so on and so forth. 
I've been really, really just excited about the bridging of issues under the banner of ending child poverty, because we all know that that's the root cause of so many of society's ills. I'm talking with Jackie Wong of the nonprofit Grace and the Washington Unified School District Board of Education in the West Sacramento area. Turning to your role as a locally elected school board member, what motivated you to run for a seat on the Washington Unified School Board? Parents. I was actually asked by parents, and it's, it's always a really funny story when I tell people. I think when they approached me, they just thought Jackie was the mom who would bring brownies or would stuff baskets for teachers. And so parents said there was an open seat and um, folks were looking for good people. And even though I work for the Senate president, the pro tem, had a role in working with stakeholders on the design of the local control funding formula for young people in foster care. The parents at the ground level didn't know any of that. And so it was really the parents who actually motivated me to run for the Washington Unified School District to, to help make a difference, to represent their voice and their needs. What are the basic demographics of the school district? Our student population is approximately 6,700 students. Um, we are Title I districts with approximately 70% free or reduced lunch students. About 20% of our students are English language learners. And we are about 1% uh, foster youth, which is fairly significant given the numbers across the state of California. How has the operation of your school board changed since the big shutdown back in March? What are the communication challenges in terms of parents, community, and the stakeholders that you serve? So the function of our school board has changed drastically, very much like our colleagues all across the state. For the first time ever, we had to think about how to feed not just children, but their families. And so for us, we had to think of creative ways to providing meals, breakfast, and lunch to children who were solely reliant on being fed at school. So we realized very quickly that schools were centers of community. In addition to that, we began to think about the trauma that was being experienced by our families and our staff and our students because of COVID-19 and isolation. And the question then became, how do we actually reach out to families to make sure that they were well, social, emotionally, as well as financially. So we became centers of communities. We cr increased our partnerships with Yolo County, for example, as well as the, the city of West Sacramento to make sure that all the needs of our, our families were being met. For example, whether or not they had enough money to actually pay for rent and, and other things like that. And we also have the blessing of having social workers and outreach workers, as well as family liaisons who are able to reach out to families who are specifically mono lingual Spanish speaking or spoke another language. And so we were blessed to have a very robust student support team who actually also checked in on families who were less connected to schools. So really, we became a very uh, central part of the well-being and response to COVID-19 and families. Your district has been back open with distance learning for about a month. How's it going? We've had the time to reflect and reevaluate how we could do this better in the fall. What we were able to do is actually provide um, very clear investments in professional development for both our classified and certificated staff. 
In addition to this, we had several parent groups involved in the reopening plans. And so we incorporated that feedback. Things like we created learning centers for families who were essential workers or single parents where they could actually drop off their children and where they could be provided uh, distance learning. We're able to work with childcare providers and the city on providing childcare needs as a, a pay for service. So we think that it's going well. Of course, it's never perfect because this is the first time in history that education has been taught this way. I'm proud to say that even before COVID, we actually made a commitment to do one-to-one. So every child was going to one-to-one device so that we could become a 21st century world-class school district. And so we had already made that investment. We handed out 5,000 Chromebooks in advance of opening schools and several hundred hotspots in addition to the learning centers. The other thing that we have invested in is parent university to make sure that the parents know how to use the technology and how to best support students, which I think is also another unique opportunity for us to actually better engage parents in the teaching and learning of students. And what are the prospects for reopening in person sometime this year? What are the Yolo County health metrics that you're looking at? Well, our testing rate is below 5% right now. So I just checked them this morning. This is definitely a conversation with our county public health department, but also the larger kind of partners that we have with the county, right? And so I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, but we're still keeping track. And I keep track daily on whether or not we have new cases every single day. And so I am hopeful with the collective public responsibility to mitigate COVID-19 that something will be able to happen for our kids. And I, as you know, it's it's especially important for our kids who are special needs kids with 504s and distance learning just doesn't fit within their entitlements as special education students. And Jackie, how have the issues around racial injustice played out in the Washington community And how are the voices of your students and parents being captured in the discussions? I'm proud that we lead now with equity at the heart of everything we do. We were the first cohort to be selected to be part of the California School Boards Association's equity network. I am also, I'm a delegate for the region. And it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of hard conversations. Last year, when I was president, we were able to redraft our school board goals to be equity focused with that racial lens. I think that also led to a first time ever conversation this year with the public around institutional racism within education. And so we got a lot of really great feedback about just holding the conversation about what this meant for our community, given everything that is happening in the world right now. And so I'm proud to say that it's a beginning conversation and we're planting the seeds for more work. Um, We're making the right investments in anti-racist training for both our district staff as well as our teaching staff. And so we're well on our way. I mean, we're not perfect, but it started with the board leadership first and us unpacking our own impressions about um, what education really meant for our children of color. And I ask at every single board meeting if data is presented that we need to disaggregate it because I think there's a tendency for many boards to look at aggregate level data and not really understand the impact of certain subgroups. So that's become a a part of our culture now to ask for the disaggregated data. And finally, Jackie, how have the experiences of March through September in this extraordinary year changed you as a leader in either of the two main hats that you're wearing? I'm definitely more committed 
I think now more than ever that it's hard to be a school board member. We were all of a sudden overnight turned into epidemiologists and, um, and again, centers of community. And so for me, as I talk to my board colleagues, we need true leadership now more than ever. We need collaboration. We need thought leaders. We need visionaries. And how do we actually dig ourselves out and rebuild better an education system that was flawed? Right. As I mentioned earlier, that I was part of the discussion and um, design with stakeholders around the local control funding formula. And that was rooted in real equity work. And my, my question to my colleagues is, how do we fulfill the promise of the local control funding formula when so many of the inequities have been highlighted with COVID-19? We thought we had made progress, but now that when you actually see who does have access to resources, who is creating learning pods, who's not creating learning pods, who has computers, who doesn't, it really is a different type of call to action about really how do we build back better? And I am actually much more invested. I'm committed to actually closing that achievement gap for all of our students in a much more thoughtful versus a reactive way. Because as much progress as we've made, and I think other boomers would say this, that we've actually probably lost some ground because of COVID-19. Jackie, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you asking me to be here. That was Jackie Wong, who is a leader in the effort to end child poverty in California and a hardworking locally elected member of the Washington Unified School District Board of Education in the West Sacramento area. Let's leave this episode with a number from Washington Unified's own River City High School's jazz band playing at the Delta King Jazz Jubilee. This has been Schools on the Front Lines brought to you by Ed Source and the Ball Frost Group. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our opening theme is by Utah. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. Talk to you next week.